from CNU 23 in Dallas, this is the Strong Towns Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Jim Kuman, and uh, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, we let Chuck escape for uh, a couple minutes of our marathon uh, podcasting sessions here at CNU 23 in Dallas. Uh, and uh, with me here uh, next in the saddle is Dan Perolek from Opticos Design, and we are uh, here to talk about the missing middle, amongst other things that are going on uh, in the Great West. Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. So uh, I always like to say that uh, I am, and uh, you are uh, as well, of the uh, West Coast School of New Urbanism, uh, having spent uh, four years in, in Los Angeles, and you hold down uh, the, uh, the fort up in the Bay Area, along with many others that are now in the uh, CNU California chapter that we sort of co-started at the same time as separate entities, and now are one, one entity. Yes. <laughs> How is it going in California, and what's, what's going on in the Bay Area? Uh, things are things are really great. I think um, the, the the economy has obviously recovered in the Bay Area, to, to say the least. And I think the real challenges now are not how to get good urbanism, but rather how to number one retain the characteristics and qualities of a place that sort of make it unique and make it attractive to folks, but yeah. also. You know, dealing with issues like household affordability and displacement are becoming more and more of an issue uh, throughout the Bay Area as in other communities across the country that are, you know, experiencing a similar um, sort of really huge jump in the market demand for people wanting to live there. Yeah, we've seen some really amazing stuff. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Granola Shotgun, uh, Johnny Sanfilippo do some fantastic work, uh, especially in uh, Silicon Valley. He, he lives in San Francisco, but traces around the Central Valley and, and Northern California. And just talking about sort of this issue, of how do you suburbanize a place that you know, in the 80s and 90s just ballooned in the suburban uh, pattern of development? What do you do now that those are million-dollar houses, and these are tiny shacks, some of them in the traditional style, some of them in the suburban style? What do you do with this place that has these bits of traditional uh, settlement as well as is surrounded by everything that's come in the last 30 years. There's a real tension in the cities. Uh, we've been getting a lot of phone calls from San Jose, from uh, other smaller and bigger towns uh, nearby. They're struggling. They're not sure what to do because they have a set of rules that are trying to reinforce the suburban uh, auto-oriented pattern, and yet they have these great places that people are paying literally millions of dollars to, to be in a 1,000, 1,200-square-foot little shack that was built in the 60s because that's the best walkable place that they can be in. If they have to drive an hour in, in traffic during the week uh, to get back and forth to work, um, at least they can spend two days on the weekend at home biking around in their downtown. Um, but how do you deal with that as a region? So uh, I know you're right in the middle of that work. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's um, you know, there's a lot of really good planning work happening and a lot of zoning reform happening, but I don't think it's happening fast enough. Mm. Um, I think that uh, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between, I think people are realizing that right, the current conventional zoning system is not effective, for, in particular for regulating walkable urban places, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure why it's not more of a, there's not more um, emphasis on the fact that we need to really re do a major rethink and maybe mm -hmm. even throw out this 
this convert this current conventional zoning system and and really you know think about it from more of a form based strategy because I really think without major zoning reform you can have the best comp plan or general plan in right. place that talks about you know walkability and pedestrian oriented places but need to rethink the rules to make sure that we're removing obstacles and really incentivizing the right kind of walkable urban development and that's the only way at all that we're gonna places are gonna be able to respond to the demand. Yeah. And so, no matter what you zone the land, if it's fronting a seven lane strode, you're a little stuck in terms of transforming a place on, on the better uh, and, and recapturing that value of the investment of what you're doing. Uh, and I, I, that's interesting to see. And we'll pivot back to talking about infrastructure because I think you're uh, at a nexus now talking about how do you look at different types of housing patterns mm -hmm. and what does that mean uh, in terms of its relationship with the, with the public realm. But I want to pivot back briefly to talk a little bit about the main reason here. You are here at CNU. You're going to be giving a presentation I think it's tomorrow or on Friday. I can't remember now which one. Uh, talking about this concept called the missing middle. And I want to let you introduce that. And I'll, I have some comments about that where, where we sort of share some colleagues as well as uh, interest from where we came to this idea. Yeah. And so um, missing middle housing, what it is, is it's the scale of housing between the single family detached housing type and the three, four plus story walk-up or condo apartment building. And it's the duplex, it's the bungalow court, it's the six to eight unit mansion apartment. It's the mix of housing types that exist in any pre-1940s neighborhood across the country. It might be Omaha, it might be Duluth, it might be Berkeley, San Diego, New Orleans. Every pre-1940s neighborhood has this mix. And what is unfortunate is, for a lot of different reasons, we call it missing because it's not being built today. Zoning makes it hard. Financing makes it hard. Um, there are a lot of different challenges for doing it. But um, so we, I first introduced the idea of missing middle housing about five years ago at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. And there's just been a tremendous growing demand and interest in information about the topic of missing middle housing. And so we felt it was really important to um, provide an online resource for people to, um, to, to get more information about what it is, uh, what defines it, how they can use it, educational materials about how to talk about it within their communities. So um, the website was really set up more as an educational resource. And um, you can download articles. You can download my article on missing middle housing. You can download presentation slides. You can download articles by others that are supporting this, uh, this need for this type of missing middle housing. Um, I mean, it's really quite interesting, right? There's, I think uh, Arthur Nelson says that there's a 70... Uh, what did he say? There's a, uh, I think, 75 to 85 million unit shortage in attached and small lot housing types and across the country. And you can imagine a simple statistic like that does to um, sort of how a community might respond and react to that. I thought we had all these extra single-family houses laying around from the boom before the recession. How, how can we be so short, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, we... This con the concept of this really nice and broad, diverse mix of housing types isn't something that's new to CNU or to CNU members. I, kn I know, like Stephanos Polizoides, I mean, a lot of different CNU founders have been talking about this for quite some time, but there's something about positioning it and giving it, giving it a name 
and making it um, accessible to communities across the country that's made, made sort of really increase the interest. Yeah, and, and uh, full disclosure, speaking of Stephanos, uh, so I worked for Stephanos uh, for a couple of years, and uh, my our good friend Tony Perez, who now works in your office, mm-hmm. um, you know, we that's what we we sort of jokingly call the West Coast School is is thinking about building typology. Uh, Stephanos uh, really brought back, speaking of accessibility, the courtyard housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, style, which is sort of a, a more intense style at the upper end of the missing middle, uh, being able to use uh, closely attached and, and creating courtyards with those attached housing uh, in order to create densities uh, that do not have to uh, have the sort of stoic three to four story block solid impenetrable uh, form um, that is so repulsive to some people because when you stick it next to a single family house, uh, it doesn't work right. And so the courtyard housing uses the features and styles and roof lines and window types of, of small housing, right, but to create high intensity of form and use. And that's sort of the magic to me of sort of the missing middle is to be able to take things that are, are as you said, in every one of our traditional cities uh, of pre-1940 era in the country, there's a flavor and type that's geographically appropriate and was, was actively happening. Uh, I live in a neighborhood like that in South Minneapolis. Um, there's a fourplex and a, and a duplex right across the street from me. And in Minneapolis, what happened in the 70s was that people, uh, you know, there was declining housing values, and so the city said, well, too many of single-family houses are being turned into duplexes and triplexes, and that's hurting blah, 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 which was true at the time. Um, and, and when you have folks who aren't taking care of the properties and so forth, the problem is 40 years later, now we're seeing a resurgence. Uh, we're, we're over 400,000 people now. We've gained 15,000 people in the last uh, s- several years here since the, since the census. And now we have a need for more housing than single family. My neighborhood has been experiencing double-digit increases in, in housing value every year since the middle of the recession. That can't sustain itself if you, you know, want to actually have inclusive, uh, affordable housing options. So uh, we just passed an ADU ordinance, which is helpful, accessory dwelling unit ordinance in Minneapolis, which is a small piece, right? But those aren't cheap, right? We're going to have to spend $75,000 to build a new garage in our backyard. So um, we're stuck with this legacy of saying, well, you know what? We, 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 we need a 10,000 square foot lot in order to build a duplex in the city of Minneapolis right now. Right, yep. ten thousand square foot lot is like two and a half lots, right? So you could build, you know, three houses almost on the space that you're required to build two. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and and so what I was thinking about as you were talking through that is that I mean, inherent in conventional zoning is suburban development patterns, right? And that is that's really why. And I also, I, I first thing I tell communities is you cannot. Uh, encourage missing middle housing by zoning with a density-based system. No. Because you might have a courtyard apartment or a bungalow court that could be up to 35 units, maybe even 40 units per acre, next to a triplex or a duplex that might only be 20-something units per acre. And they're a completely compatible form, and they you know, make a nice streetscape. But if you're zoning by density, you're excluding one or the other of those. There's no way to have inclusive of both. Yeah, yeah, and so this this idea of stepping back, really throwing out the conventional zoning system and thinking about what 
pellet or group of these missing middle housing types are appropriate for that area and doing a set of supplemental standards regulations for each of those types mm -hmm. maybe even tying it back you make, making sure you tie it back to a minimum lot size but that can alone can just very simply encourage this really broad range of types and and remove obstacles for smaller units as well. So talk to me a little bit about the, the formulation of that in existing places. I know you guys just finished up some uh, amazing work in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. When you go into a real place, right, you have to take the form of 150-year-old cities. Yep. Some places have alleys, some places don't have alleys. Uh, I saw on the, on the website uh, the, the first few vignettes you guys have been able to fully work all the way through and show in a number of different capacities. Um, talk to me about the role of alleys in the traditional human scale development pattern and what that does in order to be able to create flexibility with lot sizes because that's really the key why the missing middle housing is happening is we've basically through platting we've eliminated the possibility of making this puppet happen. Yeah, I think Ellie's especially when you get over a certain density or to a certain housing type, multi-unit housing type, Ellie's are really quite necessary. Um, because, um, and, a, and a certain lot width, if you, what we have found that if you get below about a 45-foot lot in okay. terms of its width, you need an alley, otherwise your driveway is going to take up half of half of the lot or right. make the lot undevelopable, especially in terms of a multi-unit uh, type that might need uh, a handful of parking spaces in the back. So alleys are really, really important, but sort of getting back to an earlier point you made about um, this is not a, a, a theoretical exercise in terms of talking about regulating missing middle with form-based coding. Like this, this has been adopted in cities across the country. Um, Cincinnati was our most recent uh, uh, adoption of a form-based code at a citywide scale that has these building types, these missing middle types, as a foundation of the form-based code. We've done it in Livermore, California. That's a pretty small community. Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, a small community in the uh, Central Valley of California called uh, Kingsburg. Um, and we're ramping up right now as we're just jumping into the rewrite of Austin, Texas's land development code rewrite. And so thinking about it at that scale yeah. is a real challenge, but it's necessary. And they, um, it's exciting. They've really latched onto this concept of missing middle housing in Austin and are using it as a tool to look for ways to increase household affordability uh, throughout mm. the city in a city that's just growing like crazy and prices mm. are skyrocketing. Yeah, I'll, let's come back to Austin because I want to talk a little bit more about Cincinnati because yeah. the, the, the two of them are such a great juxtaposition, right, yes. of challenges. And so tell me about the reaction as you went through the public process. Obviously, it was, was a two-year process to redo their code or how long did in it Cincinnati take? yeah well um, it actually uh, the city was really really smart um, Rex, Roxanne Qualls who at the time was the vice mayor former mayor and it was a city council member basically went took the city through a two-year education process where she brought mm. us in sort of every six to eight weeks over the course of a couple years to do education just oh. present to neighborhood organizations present to the ULI you know, present to the staff members. Um, and so they really built up to it at the point where we actually started writing the code. It was about a year and a half process, including wow. a uh, two uh, five-day charrettes. So it, it happened pretty quickly once the code started, but the city did a really smart thing in wrapping up to 
yeah. to, the, to the code. So talk to me about that. So you said you were brought in a number of times when you were meeting with the community and explaining this concept. Obviously, some people, even though they may have lived in the city, and I've experienced this myself in Minneapolis, you walk down the streets that we've lived on, people who've lived on these streets for 20, 30 years, they can't even explain, they can't point out necessarily what a quadplex is from a duplex, from a, you know, an eight-unit you know, eight building. How did that, how did people work through a process of rediscovering their own place, in a sense, I would guess. Yeah, in, in, in Cincinnati, it was, and it's the same in any community we work in, we really start with a photo documentation of the different neighborhoods and begin to categorize the existing build housing types, whether it be missing middle or the, a broader range of types as well. And we have found that by simply putting together a really nice uh, collection of photo boards, the general community member can really start to respond to that and say, hey, yeah, that's th these guys are really looking out for the character of my community my because place. if they can reinforce that, I'm going to support this process. And that's happened every place. And in Cincinnati, it wasn't any different. Is you know, starting out uh, a, the first of a couple of charrettes with walls plastered with photo boards of building types, of civic space types, of you know, starting to talk about the transect, Cincinnati's transect, and how how we are going to calibrate the transect for a place like Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. um, and we can introduce the transect without it being scary because it's all represented in their photos. Places. It's their yeah. places. <laughs> their transect. Yeah, yeah. so right um, so that's it's it's um, that education process is really invaluable to the to the coding process. Well, and so as a juxtaposition then to, and this is why I wanted to set it up with Cincinnati first, going to a place like Austin now. Uh, those of you on the podcast know that we've been in, in Austin quite a bit over the last year and a half. We had a big workshop there. Uh, they have lots of, of uh, fish in, in the fryer right now in terms of trying to deal with their, uh, their zoning code and as well as the transportation policy. They had a big ballot measure about transit. Um, that conversation is being restarted. And right now, they're trying to, I believe the core of the struggle in Austin is trying to understand the place that they, they have that's walkable, their core. And then where a majority of the rest of, you know, three quarters of a million people live, which is around the periphery. And it's, it's such, because they have both the human-scaled development pattern at the core and the auto-scale pattern all around, there is this very difficult neighborhood, almost by neighborhood, trying to understand the differences in the physical places in the same city. And, you know, if you work downtown, uh, can you take transit? Can you drive? Can you walk? Can you bike? All these different transportation issues uh, trying to straddle very different development patterns. How is that working out in terms of trying to talk about land? Because you can't really not talk about transportation because of the fact that it's the cause of a lot of the, the, the strife that I hear about, you know, from our members there. Yeah, that's a, a really great question. And I think in a place like Austin, and we've developed this, this methodology uh, over the course of the last seven or eight years working on citywide code updates, is the very first step in a place like Austin, as it was in Cincinnati, is defining what is a walkable urban context <laughs> and what is a drivable suburban context and where are the areas that might be drivable suburban now that you want to transform into walkable urban? So very simply put, that needs to be the foundation for a conversation like this in any city to understand that there's different types of places and they need different approaches and different rules. So that, for example, you know, Austin did a really great uh, comprehensive plan that was adopted a couple years ago now called Imagine Austin, and it identified activity corridors and activity centers. So now we're 
raising the question about, well, is it an activity corridor in a walkable urban context right. or is it in a drivable suburban? And is it that center in a walkable urban context or a drywall suburban? And how would you approach that differently in the different contexts? So that's that's been a really important foundation to the process, and um, it's been really valuable. Um, we defined those different types of contexts in a community character manual. Okay. Uh, we created a community character manual that defined those places and the characteristics of those places. And then we actually uh, set up a process that we called the community character in a box by which the the residents of the 103 neighborhood reporting areas could go out and help us document those neighborhoods and had a tremendous response. And it enabled the team to have a comprehensive collection of photographs for all of the 103 neighborhood reporting areas so that we could we could begin to understand them more carefully than we could had we not had that information. We're trying to do that all by, by ourselves or only with staff support. Right. That's quite a different, uh, that's, a, that's quite an army of, for a field team uh, that, that is, when you talk about planning process, then we're normally used to being able to harness uh, that kind of, of detailed input. And it, it has to be done in a framework, though, that, that makes sense. They have to understand you know, what it is. And I think that's so much we talk about here at Strong Towns is people being able to understand their own places for what they are. Um, there was a great book that uh, called uh, Planning to Stay that we're bringing back out of the annals of, um, of uh, the Twin Cities uh, sort of nascent new urbanism days uh, of uh, the planning by, by William Morsch and Catherine Brown, I believe it is, in front of me. Uh, but talking about, um, this, was, this was sort of in the 90s, uh, talking about looking back at what had happened in the city and the disinvestments that had been going on. And there, you know, there was a line drawn in the sand saying, hey, we're going to try to do something, but not all neighborhoods are made equal in terms of where they're starting from and where they're heading. Now, in Minneapolis, we have pretty much nothing but pre, uh, pre-war you know, places, right? And so really what, what they were doing at that point and what, what was to continue to happen is, is trying to unsuburbanize the city. Right, which may have been what was going on in Cincinnati as well, is trying to take the five-lane roads that we blew out all the sidewalks and all the street trees and everything so we could get as many cars moving as possible through that place to the freeway exit and say, well, you know what, maybe that wasn't the greatest idea for our value of our places, you know, our land value as well as, as our businesses and so forth. And so there's still that dynamic. But when you don't have that platform to start with, um, you have a very different starting conversation because from a resource perspective, and we've seen this um, not only with maybe Greenfield and urbanism projects, but other places that are trying to you know, make new towns and other crazy <coughs> thought processes of how do you start a place from scratch, where do you start the conversation to take a place that doesn't have a lot of physical uh, componentries that are going to be used in the final product of, of the, the end scale of a, of a place? How do you start to t- start that conversation? Because t- housing types, getting back to housing types, we, I've given a presentation basically showing the spectrum and saying, here is what we used to do, you know, 20, 30 housing types. And the suburban era, we basically took the single-family house, we took the three-story apartment building, we took the, the, the commercial block and turned it into a big box, and that's it. And that's all we've allowed. Where do you start to reinsert um, something different in the middle in, in a retrofitting type of, uh, of approach? Yeah, and I mean, it's a challenge, and I think once again, it, a, a lot of it gets back to a city zoning that has a, a lot of times locked these neighborhoods in their current hmm. state and, and really doesn't 
there are huge obstacles in place for integrating missing middle housing. Um, that being said, I, I think it is important. I think one of the most important characteristics of the missing middle housing and, and its most successful locations is that it is in a walkable urban context. Mm. So if you, if you start planning these types out in a suburban context where there is no there there right. and no walkability, like I call it density without amenity. So I'm not, you know, why would somebody choose to live there other than that? That's all they can afford. And that's not the point. It's like people right. are making the conscious decision to live in, in these different non single family, different types of housing. And, um, you know, one thing I wanted to mention about, uh, the missing middle is it, we're, we're pretty amazed at how broadly this idea is being applied. Um, uh, the, the state of Michigan has this My Place strategy, the statewide economic development strategy about, um, you know, trying to revitalize and create walkable urban places, and they're using missing middle, the concept of missing middle in their toolkit of ways to implement this this goal of, of thriving, vibrant urban places. Um, and they're actually hosting with the state AIA, the first uh, missing middle housing design competition. Excellent. And the city of Nashville is using missing middle housing concepts to update their citywide zoning code and their comp plan. Um, <laughs> I just the other day we came across Des Moines, Iowa, and their comp plan process is even integrating missing middle housing into their comp plan, which is exciting to see. And we're seeing, even seeing production builders. Um, we're working with one in Salt Lake City right now, Homes Homes, that are thinking creatively creatively about how to diversify their non-single-family housing types. And they realize that the demand and the market is shifting, and the smart builders are really thinking carefully about what kind of what missing middle housing types can they integrate into their portfolios to broaden, broaden, their, um, broaden their market. So uh, we are reaching the end of our time here. Tell me a little bit more about uh, the future of the product itself and how folks could contribute and, and be of service in adding to uh, the knowledge base of Missing Middle. Yeah, so um, the missingmiddle.com website, uh, it's going to continue to evolve. It's a, it's a, we see it as a work in progress, and we're, we're, we're wanting to add capabilities for, um, from people in communities all across the country to, to be able to send us photographs, send us documentation so that we can build a national database um, that really covers every corner of the country. I think we've done a pretty good job of representing different geographic and different sizes of places. But another idea we've had is we've started uh, creating some Google Maps that just pinpoint where missing middle housing types exist in different communities and we're, we're going to set up a system by which other people can send us Google Maps that we can add to a, a list of resources. So yeah, we're, we're really hoping to um, kind of utilize a broader network, whether it be the New Urbanist Network, the Strong Towns Networks, Smart Growth Networks out there to really expand this database and make it sort of the most robust system and make it the most helpful for people who really want to latch onto it. And think about utilizing missing middle housing as a way for their communities to meet this growing demand for walkable urban living. Sounds fantastic, and I think uh, we'd love to be a part of that effort, and I, I'm sure many of you out there probably are thinking about, I know some people uh, go jogging and walking in their neighborhoods uh, while listening to the Strong Towns podcast, maybe you're passing by some of these places now. 
and we would love to figure out a way to do that. And we should do a follow-up blog post, maybe once we get after seeing you here and, and figure out how we, we can organize that. Uh, our, our blog readership sometimes is, is very different from our podcasting listenership, and so uh, it would be a great way to also cross-pollinate to the, the greater network out there. So maybe we could put some more instructions and ideas about how to uh, funnel uh, that type of information uh, to you, all of you uh, directly uh, in, in, a, in a great way, and maybe we could figure out some ways to make some templates and so forth that would be helpful, because um, different types of buildings have different types of challenges in trying to document them. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. uh, well, thanks so much, Dan. We appreciate your time here on the podcast and look forward to uh, great seeing you. Great. Thanks, Jim. that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.